This podcast is produced for and by North Memorial Health for the purpose of educating EMS providers. It does not constitute online medical control or medical advice. To access North Memorial Ambulance's guidelines, go to acidremap.com slash sites slash North Memorial. Covering over 10,000 square miles of Minnesota and Wisconsin with unmatched customer service and cutting-edge clinical care. Introducing the North Memorial Health Ambulance Podcast. Here are your hosts, Alex Tremblay and Zach Finn. Slightly different format for the next couple weeks. These are case presentation style reviews of the guidelines, meaning that these are not real cases. They're commonly occurring issues that we see when we're out in the field taking care of people that we are going to try and frame up in a how-would-you-do-it way. We're going to be looking at really common clinical conditions that maybe have some less common treatments. So we want you to think of this as how you would do it. Again, not a real case, not based on anything in fact, just a new way to give info. Welcome back, everybody. Podcast, I guess this is third episode of the season. I don't know what our season calendar looks like, but I think that we'll call it the third episode of the season. But Alex has been talking about doing some case discussions for a while, and yeah. so we're going to try it today. Zach just tried to get me to remember the film The Fifth Element, and I didn't remember it. So everyone should shame Alex that he does not remember one of the other greatest movies of all time that doesn't contain Nick Cage, unfortunately. The only way it would have been better. Uh, but uh, I don't even remember Chris Tucker being in that movie. What? Yeah, it's been a long time. Ruby Rod. He's yeah. great. It's wonderful. Okay. Fantastic. Multipass. Okay. So he, so here's the deal today is Zach has not given me any information about the case, and uh, I'm going in blind. I gave him the option if he wanted information. He said no. You thought that it would be a cool idea if I went in blind. And so and I, I offered you to not do that. And you I, said, I'll do it. I trust your judgment. And uh, mistake number one. Yeah. No. Hopefully it's not a mistake. Zach, uh, one of my favorite podcasts has a segment called What Hurts at the beginning. Uh, Everything. Yeah, I know. It all what hurts. Happened to me? We're in our 30s. Everything hurts. My, my, I'm starting to have, for the first time I, as that I can remember, like some back pain. And I asked Lauren yesterday, I was like, does an this, epidural abscess. I hope so. I asked Lauren, I was like, does this, does this mean I'm done? Like, do I have to hang it up? And she's like, no, you have to go to a doctor. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, that's much better than having to retire, I guess. <laughs> like, you got a case for me? I do have a case. You're toned out to a call here. You're going to a local uh, nursing facility. It's uh, mid-afternoon here. It's the middle of winter. And you're in a relatively rural location. There's a Community hospital, probably about 25, 30 minutes away in normal driving condition. And then about 45 to 50 minutes away, there is a hospital that has, that's a level, we'll say it's level two or three trauma center, has cath lab capabilities, but no neural capabilities beyond tenectum. This is essentially made up. So We see many cases like this one. Yeah. And this one is made up, which is great. Yeah. It's uh, metadata. All right. So uh, you get that information. Uh, anything you're doing as you're going out to that call, they're, they're dispatched to a person who is a sick person. Okay. It's a 23C dispatch code. Yep. All right. So you're dispatched there. It's about a seven minutes away from your base, not too far. Okay. Right. You get there. Uh, a staff member takes you up to the room, and you get there, and they say, yeah, he's really been saying mostly he's short of breath, 
But, you know, we called today because he pressed his button call light and said that he felt like he was about to die. Uh, what are you thinking as you walk in that room and you hear those words? That's never good. I don't. There are very few people that say I feel like I'm about to die that don't mean it. Me, if I wake up with back pain, I guess. Yeah. But uh, you know, I getting sent on somebody that's sick, like a sick one, is such a hard thing to do in this work. Because like now, I'm just gonna bring everything, right? Let's just start from the beginning. So yeah. My first questions, if that's the full report, is I'd probably send our our sniff colleague to go get paperwork and you know the medication action record and all of those things. Um, and this is a pretty nicely done facility. So they actually have those things ready for you by the time you get there. All right. And then I, I you know, I'm going to ask the patient to just give me more information, right? And yes. while I'm doing that, we'll probably put him on the monitor and get yeah. some vitals. And- yeah. You walk in the room um, and you see him. He's sitting on the side of the bed. He's got staff there. He does, when you walk in the room, you notice that he does look a little bit pale, but he's aware to you walking in the room. But he does look pale and he doesn't, he looks like he doesn't feel great. Okay. And, you know, he was able to tell somebody that he felt sick, which at at a minimum gives some sort of level of cognition and his airways intact because he was able to talk. So that's what I think so far. And we'll start getting vitals and put them on the monitor. And I'm going to ask, you know, more specific, you feel like you're going to die. How? Right. Yeah. yeah. And so you see him, you get in there, and he looks at you, he's walking in the room, and you say that, and he just says, something doesn't feel right. Okay. And that he just, I, I feel like I'm dying, is what he says. And he's not able to give us any more information, really, than that. What other information would you like? Well, I think, like, the the biggest thing for me is the, is the sick how thing, right? Like, you know... What doesn't feel right? Is it does? Is it pain? Is it? Yeah, I don't have any weakness? pain. Is it trouble breathing? Yeah, I got. I do feel pretty weak. I really okay. do feel like I'm weak. Um, okay. Weaker than usual. Weaker than usual. I don't usually feel super okay. weak at all. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't feel super short of breath, but um, I just feel like I'm not breathing well either. Okay. Is it like you can't take a deep breath? Is it? No matter how much you breathe, it doesn't feel like you're getting enough. What yeah, kinda... it just feels like I'm not getting enough. And he does seem somewhat winded when you're talking to him. Sure. I'm not great at doing a wind <laughs> impression. <laughs> it's hard. Maybe I can do that. But um, I'd rather you didn't. Thank I, you. Because yeah. I'm the audio editor. It's going to make that difficult for you. <laughs> yeah. So he does seem a little bit winded, but doesn't look like he's not pale looking. He just doesn't have blue lips. Um, or he is pale looking, but doesn't have blue lips. Excuse me. Okay. So what are our first set of vitals? Yeah, here? so you get them on the monitor here. Uh, you've noticed that when you're putting things, or your partner tells you when you're putting things on, that his skin does feel pretty clammy and okay. kind of cool. I think he's eaten clams recently. Uh, that's probably the case. Um, and uh, your partner tells you that your first blood pressure comes back at 78 over 50. Okay, so his map's about 59, which isn't, it's not terrible. It's under 65, mm-hmm. certainly, but yeah. it's not 30. Yeah. Right? yeah. And the, your partner looks at you, hey, it says the pulse is reading at like in the 20s to 30s. Okay. Well, with the blood pressure that low, if that's coming like off the pulse ox, then we, we can't really trust that. So we should probably do a four lead. And- okay. So you get him on the four lead, and the four lead reads, um, puts you at a heart rate of about 40 is on the monitor, what it's showing at. And the rhythm you see here looks like that. Oh, okay. So it appears to be a third degree heart block. That's my first look at it. It could, I guess, be a second degree type one. Yeah. So tell me what you're seeing that makes you say it's a third degree or a second degree heart block. Yeah. And if you're listening, um, go to the chapter markers and click on 
where we're at here and you'll see a strip from the life in the fasting EKG blog. But so there is a QRS complex that appears to be wide. It has this, you know, kind of narrow Q, but then the rest of it is wonky. And then there's just complete P wave disassociation. So the P and the, the QRS complex are, are disassociated. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that describes, Alex describes perfectly a complete heart block here. So a third degree or a complete heart block, right? And that's when the atria are firing and the ventricles are firing, but they have no correlation to each other. And the reason that that QRS is wide there is because it's from the intrinsic pacemaker nature of the ventricles, typically, or the AV node itself. That is, it's an escape rhythm. Yeah, if this were a relationship, you would have moved out from the house and are no longer communicating. Perfect, at all. perfect, yeah. perfect. Right. So now you have this person who, just to summarize where we're at here, right? So you've just got on scene here. The airway breathing is intact. What about circulation? What do you think? So compromised, right? Compromised. I think at the moment, my thought is, you know, he's sitting up, he's on the edge of the bed, he's perfusing his brain enough to at least give us some information, uh, which is helpful, right? Uh, I think he said his sats were okay, or maybe I didn't ask. Did you? His sats were, it seems to be having trouble picking up. When you do pick up, it seems to be in the low 90s or so. Yeah, that's fine. So we'll put him on end title right away. I mean, so, you know, a... Third degree heart block is an emergency. It's it's a life threatening emergency. There are people certainly that wander around with with partial or or I I have seen one person that had a complete heart block that had no idea right like they just they fainted and they're like oh wow it's probably yeah. been this way a while but this guy is decompensated right so he's in cardiogenic shock I would say right mm-hmm. uh, and. Yeah, that would be my that would be my original impression. Yeah, yeah, I like that you call this a specific type of shock too, right? So he's in shock, right? That blood pressure is low, and we know this is specifically cardiogenic shock, right? Is our, at least our assumption here, right? His heart is not having significant output, so um, and his blood pressure is low, so he's in shock, and we know it's from a cardiac thing. So cardiogenic shock and labeling it can be very helpful in figuring out what to do next. Yeah, right. and so my priorities right now, knowing that we have forty five or so minutes to go to a hospital that has some cardiac capabilities. So Alex, I love that you're talking about, you're already thinking ahead of plan. Like, all right, what's my plan going to be immediately? And what's my longer term plan, right? I've got up to 45 minutes driving with this person or 20 minutes with this person. And what's going into your head as you're starting to make that disposition decision? Well, so we're not going to like slap this guy on the gurney and run down the hallway, right? But we're going to move with some sense of urgency. I'm not going to do a 12 lead. It's not going to tell me anything that the four lead didn't, right? But my thought is we're probably just not going to we're not going to sit on scene very long, okay. right? I all of this time, and so I I don't think I'd go to to the community hospital. I think that fifteen minutes of difference is not enough to make me concerned, right? And it's a nice day weather wise, and you know we've got good dri- good driving and all that stuff. So my thought there would be we're going to go right to the place that has potentially the cath lab or whatever that has cardiology that comes in, um, and so. I think we're going to get down to the to the truck, make sure that the person is secured, and we're going to, we're going to head out, yeah. right? We'll put stat pads on before we leave. We've got our, our end title on before we leave. We've got our vital set for every five minutes by default. I think that's all I need to do before I make, you know, before I head out. Yeah. So, so I want to touch a little bit more on your disposition decision discussion. I think that's super critical here when there are multiple choices to go to. Yeah. Right. And so when I'm deciding, when I think about our crews deciding, do you go to the local hospital or the bigger hospital, which is a longer drive, is what does that local facility have to add to the care? Right. And so you're thinking that this person needs a cath lab. 
And Alex, I'm assuming here you think this person needs a cath lab to get a pacemaker put in place. Is that well, correct? cath lab aside, if they have a 24-7 cath lab, they have interventional cardiology available. I don't know if putting a temporary pacemaker in requires you to go to an interventional cardiology suite, but I know that the people that can do the work are there and available 24-7. That's my thought. Yeah. And people who have complete heart block, they need a pacemaker. Right. Like they all get at least temporary and then often permanent pacemakers put in place almost exclusively um, is what is the treatment course here. Yeah. And so, but you've got to get them there. Right. And so how are you going to get this guy? Like, like you in talked the, a couple of things in an ambulance with yeah. diesel or I guess it's not diesel anymore. Nope. Dang. So with gasoline. So a couple of things you called out, right? You said you're going to put Entitle on. So tell me about what Entitle helps you with on this person. This is not necessarily the most correct thinking in the world, but it's it's kind of what I have in mind is if I don't have a pulse ox, well, an Entitle is a better measure of perfusion than it is a measure of oxygenation. A, a better measure of perfusion makes me feel a little bit more comfortable about not having a, a pulse ox that's functional, right? That makes sense. Yeah. And also, you said that we occasionally got a reading in the low 90s. If he is hypoxic, it's not because he's not getting enough oxygen. He's hypoxic because he's not pumping effectively. Most and likely. So, yeah. Yeah, I like all that thought process. So uh, let's talk about your end title first. So you're still yeah. in the facility. You get your end title on there. And yep. that reads in the mid-20s. Sure. What does that make you think? Well, I mean, it makes sense with a with a map of 59. Having an end title in the mid-20s is fine. Yeah, so you're telling me that he's not perfusing well, right? right? That end title correlates with your map that's low. That the preponderance of the evidence is that it's perfusionary and not like respiratory. Yeah, right. right? Yeah. So that's but that's good. That's helpful information, right? Because I've seen people with low blood pressures who are still perfusing okay. Right. But this person's different, right? This person has a blood pressure with the map below sixty, uh, below, way below sixty five, below sixty, and very systolically low in uh, um, upper seventies here, and they have an end title that correlates with being hypotensive and right. Uh, and not perfusing appropriately. So what do you do next? Well, so we're going to, like I said, we're going to put him on the stretcher. We're going to put him probably closer to flat than sitting up, but we want him to be comfortable, right? But you don't want to sit him bolt upright so that he faints. <laughs> I, don't, I was going to find some sort of, so he syncopates, right? Yeah, right. I mean, uh, sitting yeah. upright, as we know, we don't want to stand people up that yeah. potential will get worse. So good. Yeah, and we'll put pads on now, right? You know, I... I have had a number of times where you're a mile from the ambulance because these facilities are so massive or whatever. So put the stat pads on now. We're not going to start pacing right here in this moment. He's perfusing his brain. I, and again, this is, this is completely dogmatic and not guideline based. I'd rather do it where I have more access to more stuff because we have no idea how he's going to react to that being paced. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, when you lay him a little flatter, he seems to tolerate that. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, you get them on the stretcher, you get the stat pads on. Where are you putting the stat pads? Anterior posterior okay. in this case. Yeah. And you put them anterior posterior and you go down, you get them moved to the truck. Right? Where are you getting access? Are you getting access on scene or are you getting access in the truck? We'll probably do it on the way to the hospital. Okay. We have so much time to be together. Like, yeah. Okay. And then. But we're going to pace first, right? And so this is like I've been sitting here and taking notes and thinking about this and. Do I think professionally that pacing first is the thing that my brain goes to? No, it's not. But this guy's going to have flat vasculature. He's heading towards worsening condition, right? Like he's not going to get better. We're going to start the pacemaker and then 
use that opportunity to say, hey, listen, this is really uncomfortable. We could do a little intranasal something or other. I think in an ideal world, we'd have, we would use ketamine. Today, we can't, right? Um, and then we'll try once for an IV. And then I, I shamelessly do not have any problem going right to a humoral IO if that's the case, right? Like if I don't see anything, we'll just put a humoral IO in and give them a little lidocaine. I think that's all super appropriate. You talk a little bit about your professional uh, idea about when to start pacing on this person. So what tells you this person needs to be paced before you leave the facility or do you have time to get to the truck? I think the fact that at the moment he's perfusing his brain, right? So if he, and, and that's not the end all be all right. Like with a map of 59, his kidneys probably aren't getting a ton of function. You start to worry about his gut, not getting a ton of, of blood flow, but he's still perfusing his brain, which means that what I'm going to do is both uncomfortable and scary and so to take that opportunity to say, hey, listen, we're walking down to the ambulance. We're going to have to do this procedure. It's really uncomfortable. I don't personally know how uncomfortable it is, but I have a guess, right? And um, I want you to be prepared for that. We have to do it to help your heart. Once your heart is, is pumping better, we can give you medicine to make the pain less. That takes time to like walk from the, the nursing home room to the ambulance. And then on top of that, I think having anything so you know you start pacing and they get nauseated they vomit and they aspirate i if i have my bag and my monitor with which is likely what i would bring for a sick person i can't do anything right but i can do something in the ambulance and i i I just want to highlight like alex that's a really nice way to think about this i love that you're saying he's perfusing okay right now right you're aware that he's going to at some point or could at some point go the opposite direction and stop perfusing well. And so you have a little more time. And this goes back to everyone might remember, most people remember the 2022 SAE when we talked about this idea of stable versus unstable, right? You could have a complete heart block that's very stable, right? People can be in complete heart block and have normal blood pressures. And yeah, I just felt a little dizzy today when I was up walking around and you see that they're in complete heart block and that could be a stable person, right? And then you have unstable the person who's unresponsive or syncopizing in front of you. This person's got low blood pressure, but they're perfusing their brain enough. So they're somewhat in between stable and unstable. I think you're probably appropriate to think that this person is more on the unstable side than the stable side, but you have enough time to make them comfortable and optimize things before you go down that pathway. So I love the way you did that and your thought process there. Yeah, the CUPS mnemonic came out after I got out of school. The critical, unstable, potentially unstable, it's stable, right? And I mean, this this person to me is like between the U and the P, right? Like they're they're much closer to unstable than potentially unstable, but I have time yeah. and I have enough time to reduce the risk of suffering in this case. Yeah. And by putting the stat pads on in the nursing home room, if the guy, the patient suddenly were to become unresponsive halfway down the hallway and just pull over and stop, right? I mean, and then just do the thing. Yeah. So, Yeah, I, I think that's great. So tell me why you don't want that EKG at full Tell 12. Tell me why. I ain't nothing but a hearty. <laughs> we're going to get another DMC claim after the tour. <laughs> oh, we're that good at singing. Yeah, that's, they, they'll know. Um, it's not going to tell us anything that, that a four lead doesn't. I think if you were going to do it, you'd do it before you pace, right? But at that point, am I fighting putting a four lead, a 12 lead on in exchange for trying to negotiate these two massive, like hilariously large pacer pads? And so I have enough information, like 
you know, a, a, the 60 hertz filter that comes with a 12 lead is to find these really subtle wonkinesses, right? Like ST segment changes. The 10 hertz filter that's on a four lead, and especially when you use the stat pads, which pick up so much more information over this huge amount of, of electrode monitoring, that four lead is enough to tell you what the rhythm is. And in this case, it is a rhythm problem. Could this guy have had a STEMI that caused him to go into a third degree heart block? Yes. Because he's in a third degree heart block, we will not see it anymore. Yeah. So I think that's awesome, right? A lot of people are like, well, this is an unstable person or a potentially unstable person. I want this EKG to see if they need a cat. But it, EKG doesn't actually change anything here. We know what the problem is. The problem, at least, is right now a heart block is the most immediate life-threatening thing. And getting a 12-lead, if we have time for it and they're more stable, by all means, sure. Yeah. Right? It's a cool-looking EKG. It can be helpful for the hospital, maybe. But it doesn't actually help your patient. And so I think that 4-lead or even just the stat pads, when you if you put your – you felt this person's pulse and it was in the 20s on C and you're like, nope, just put the stat pads on. That's how I want to see my my rhythm. Yeah. Be reasonable too. Yeah. And again, like for as much grief as I give those stupid pads, like you you have to imagine a, an electrode is an inch by a half an inch, right? A stat pad is at least three inches by three inches. The amount of information it's taking in is just so much bigger, right? Yeah. So do we ever teach people that if you show up on C and the person's very unstable looking and you're worried that they need to be have some electricity that you can just put the stat pads first instead of the four lead. I think we probably have, have brought that up. Certainly. I think after uh, doing this a bunch of times, if they have a pulse and especially if they're awake, it's not your best option. Okay. Now, if you walk in and they're soaking wet with sweat, the four leads are just going to roll right off anyway. Yeah, sure. Do what you have to do, but you should take the opportunity, right? Like somebody that's having anaphylaxis is going, could potentially have the same blood pressure, the same clinical presentation as this person, and they don't need electricity, hopefully, right? That makes sense. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, could you do it? Yes. Would I do it? Probably not. Gotcha. That's yeah. helpful. Thanks for that insight. So, uh, you get them in the truck and you get an IV in them, so you get a big old 18 gauge. You got some juicy ones for you. Uh, we'll, we'll make that a part. But I think to if you don't have a quick access on this person, I love the idea of a quick humeral head IO with some lidocaine here. So um, IOs are relatively safe. They are they hurt to push things in it, but people tolerate it pretty well if you do some lidocaine in it. I've had, yeah. had a lot more success than I think I will after a little lidocaine that these go way better than I expect. To just let the lidocaine sit for a bit. So push the lidocaine, disconnect your bag, lock off the the lock, and let that lidocaine sit for two or three minutes. Because if you just push it and then follow it with fluids, it's going to get to the vasculature. And what you're really trying to do is get it soaked up into that bone. That's so, a great tip, too. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. So, but we get 18 gauge IV in, and um, you tell your partner, all right, we can probably start driving here. We'd, we'd have, we'd have. Started driving. Started driving, yeah, right? for sure. So you still got 44 minutes and 30 seconds left in your transport. It's bold of you to assume I can get an IV that fast. <laughs> I know you're good, Alex. The person doesn't seem to be talking to you as much anymore. Their eyes are kind of rolling back in their head intermittently. They'll, they'll, they'll answer you with a quick word when you say their name, but then they kind of drift off and they seem a little more slurred speech. I think I had mentioned that I would start pacing before I put the line in. So my hope is that that would have not oh, so happened. We're okay, gotcha. But let's okay. So let, let's play it out though. So yep. let's say that I do the IV first. At that point, as soon as that IV's in, some meds are going to follow behind it. And I want to be clear. I understand what the guideline says about blood pressure. We talked about this when we talked about yep. the pacing uh, like three episodes ago, yep. uh, or four episodes ago now, probably that. 
once you pace them, their blood pressure is going to get better no matter what, right? Like if you are successfully pacing, you have taken over their ability to pump and you're going to be able to get a better blood pressure. We're going to give, I don't know, maybe a hundred of fentanyl or I'd probably wait on Versed, but we're going to give something and then the pacemaker is going to go on right away. Yeah. So you would give pacemaker, say this person, say you hadn't started pacing yet because the person was still talking to you. Okay. So you thought you'd have a chance to get access and everything. And then they start rolling their eyes back in their head. They start getting more altered. Do you give medications first or you just start pacing? Uh, I'd start pacing first. Start pacing? Yeah. yeah. So, and then let's talk through that pacing. So what are you doing on the monitor to, to start pacing them? Yeah. So we're going to move to the pacer module. I'm going to vamp for a second while I make sure that I get the right dosing and stuff. Here we go. Adult bradycardia. All right. So we're going to start at a rate of 70 beats per minute. Once we get to the pacer module, we'll run down to 70 milliamps as well so it starts at zero it has to default to zero the pacemaker has to default to zero milliamps so make sure everybody's aware of that and we'll start running them up until we see capture and then we will feel capture i've paced a handful of people i would guess maybe a dozen it's weird i've I've not cardio over many times i've paced a lot maybe it's because we just feel more comfortable pacing people anyway uh i almost always end up auscultating so if i have to pull over for a second i will like i want to hear not just feel because you feeling for a pulse alone can be really misleading right yeah and so I, that's a really good thing that i actually hadn't thought about much and we've seen a few cases where people will we see somebody that they think they've got mechanical capture and we're looking at the zoll file in the back end and their blood pressure and like i don't really know if they had mechanical capture or not and i like alex's idea here that if you can hear the heartbeat that correlates with the pacer spike on the monitor You've got capture, right? You're hearing that cardiac contraction, and that can be a very helpful thing to making sure that, yes, you do have mechanical capture. Of course, feeling for pulse at the same time, right? So it's looking at the monitor, listening to the heart, and feeling for a central pulse all at the same time. Right. right it's a lot to do, but that's a great way to do it. And if you have to pull over to make that happen, that's great. Um, so say you amp up and you start, you're listening, you're feeling, you're watching, and at about 85 milliamps, it starts looking like you're getting electrical capture. Okay. Well, that's good. So I'll go up to 90. Okay. And at 90, you feel mechanical capture. Okay. If I feel it at 90, then I'm going to go up another 10%. So I'll go up to probably just go up to 100. So 100. Point. So yeah. you're going up. So just to lock it in, right? Yep. Yeah, so go up to where you get mechanical capture and go up a little bit to keep it there. Yep. Okay. So you do that and he immediately starts yelling at you. Sure. Yeah. Oh, this is weird. What is happening to me? Yeah. Ow. At this point, we'd we'd probably give a couple milligrams of Versed. I think that that's reasonable. Again, in an ideal world, a year ago, we'd give him a little bit of ketamine, but just a couple milligrams of Versed. And I had already had mentioned that if we had time, we'd give fentanyl before. Backing it up with some fentanyl wouldn't be a bad idea. Concerns me the most is how long of a trip that this is going to mm-hmm. to be. Right, like we're going to be together for a long time. Yeah. So, and that again, as we talked about, that verset is really nice because it gives people that amnestic effect. So they won't remember you shocking them, or at least hopefully not as much. Um, it'll make that process a lot less uh, traumatic for them. And I'm looking at the guideline, and the guideline calls specifically for f- for fentanyl. Um, however, I I think you know. If their blood pressure is good, even if it falls under the anxiolysis guideline, I, I, I'd i feel comfortable giving it, right? These are guidelines. Yeah. So Versed should be in the guideline for the 
for the Brita card. If it's not there, we'll work on getting in there. But I do think that there's a strong value of Versed here, as we talked on the last one, for that purpose on this case. And so low dose Versed, right? So what are you thinking for dosing? Probably like two milligrams. Yeah. Nobody, and listen, even if, as we work to get that guideline updated, nobody's going to take your birthday away for doing what's best for the patient, right? Like the pain management guideline allows you to give Versed if fentanyl is ineffective. There you go, right? Yeah. What we don't want you to have to do is jump from guideline to guideline to guideline, which is why we'll make that correction to the Versed. Correct, correct. Yeah. And so the Versed would be helpful there. If you're going to do fentanyl, I start on the lower dose fentanyl, right? I mean, yeah, just a whiff. You can, you can take away the fentanyl, but not – it's – it's not good form to give them fentanyl and then Narcan them. So Yeah. I mean, two of Versed and 100 of fentanyl would probably be enough to put somebody's shoulder back in if they're already pretty Correct. sick, right? So, yeah. So uh, an, if this was an older person, right, like 25, 50 of fentanyl can go a long way for those older people, especially if they're already not perfusing well to begin with. Yeah. And, you know, you'll have to look at their meds, too, and see if they've got a history of some opiate use, yeah. right? Like Good call. Pull all that together or benzo use okay. even, you know. So that works, right? You're pacing this person. They started yelling at you. Now they're kind of calm and you've got strong central pulses. Your blood pressure on the monitor comes back at, we'll say, uh, a nice and perfect 120 over 80 here with a heart rate at 70 that correlates with your pacer rate, right? So nice job, right? But this is a case discussion, so it's not going to be that easy. Okay. Right? So now you're- I've already called the report and started charting. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. You're 30 minutes away from the hospital. You notice that your end title, which was at 40, is- down trending now it's 35 and over a couple minutes drops down back to 30 and then to 28 okay well so the first step then would be to listen and feel and see if we still have mechanical capture right so and you seem like you're you're not catching every beat any longer it seems to be losing some of these beats not unreasonable can happen the i think that the zoll goes up to 140 milliamps i'm not sure i think it's 140 i'd probably start moving my way up um and if that you know, if we're capturing 80% of the beats, let's say, or 50% of the beats, we're in better shape than we are if we are capturing none, right? And so that's less concerning to me than suddenly we have zero capture at all, because then, you know, we're kind of in a canoe without a paddle. So I'm going to go up as high as I can and see if that works. Does that work? Yeah. So you are now at, you had to go up to 140. And at 140, you have capture again. You do see that it's sometimes missing, um, but it's about 80%. Your antenna pops up now to about 36. Yeah, so I I don't think that's a that's not a bad thing. The, the thing is, is that transcutaneous pacing is meant to buy you some time, mm-hmm. right? So we know that at some point it's not going to work. You know, if we were in the clinic that shared the parking lot with the hospital, I wouldn't even worry about it, right? But we're half an hour away from the hospital. The other thing at this point then is I'm gonna, going to mix and hang an epidrip. So tell me why you're thinking about starting an epidrip. You've got capture right now, Alex. Tell me why. Okay. So we got to stop doing that. <laughs> ACLS says that EpiDrip is the one for bradycardia, and like that's where my head is at today. Theoretically, if you would put us in a wayback machine and do this five years ago, I'd say I'd mix a dopamine drip. Epinephrine, especially in that two to twenty mic per minute range, is a pretty strong chronotrope, right? So it will increase their intrinsic rate. The other thing is, is that it should give us a little more squeeze. One of the reasons that you can lose pacemaker capture is just a sick heart, mm-hmm. right? So if we can get a little bit more squeeze, that heart's going to have just a little bit more energy, so to speak. And epi overall is is low risk in that 2 to 20 mic per minute range. So yeah. that's yeah. why. Yeah, the biggest risk for then epi at that dose is 
infiltration. Or it doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> or it doesn't work, right? Yeah. And so the infiltration is, you know, you've got a good 18 gauge there and we just watch for the infiltration. If it happens, you get a new line, whether it's an IO or an IV really quickly. But if that happens, it's not usually that big of a deal if we catch it quickly, right? We don't want to put in a whole bag of epi into someone's forearm compartment. But uh, usually it's not too big of a deal. But Especially if it's diluted. But right? something yeah. you do want to let the hospital know about if it happens. Um but you're right. So are you starting the epi drip now or are you just having it ready to go? No, I think I'd put it on the pump and just put the pump to sleep and have it have it available. Yeah. I think I don't I, I'm gonna be honest with you, Zach. I don't know what you guys as the medical directors would say to that if you know we're at eighty percent capture. I can live with eighty percent capture, right? Especially if his end titles come back up and, yeah. it, and if his blood pressure is still pretty good or whatever. So. Well, so you you said exactly what we would say, right? So the eighty percent capture by me by itself, like that doesn't sound great. Right. It worries me. So I love that you're predicting the next step here. You're predicting that this person could get worse. And the next thing we can do here is if we're already maxed out in our pacer is epi. But then your thought is, well, what else do I have to figure out how well this is actually working for this person, right? So you're looking at that end title, which is awesome. I love that you said that first, end title first, is a great measure of how well they're actually perfusing here. And then next, you were looking at the blood pressure to see if that correlates. And so I think that's perfect. I don't have a lot else to add there other than I think your thought process there is great. Um Nothing we do, you can really take in isolation, right? There's always right. more to the picture, right? People can have a big pneumothorax that don't need a needle decompression, right? Yeah. People can have... So it. everything is... There's more than one thing we have to look at for each clinical picture. Yeah, agreed. And the other thing at this point, too, is you know, if I'd have had a couple minutes, the airway bag would probably be out. I'm going to put the suction under the patient's head. Yeah. Like, we're headed, we're headed towards decompensation yeah. here right anything else you're doing just thinking this person's getting sicker their heart's getting sicker we'll, we'll pull the lucas out and either if they're laying flat enough we can put it on and just not run it or we could just open the package and have it next to them put the back plate behind them yeah yeah super reasonable and i mean if you look at our air care team members right they get the lucas on these people before they're you know even they don't even use that it's on them because Obviously, in the back of the helicopter, it's very difficult to do this, Yeah, to get it on if you need to once it's already started. So, you know, this is some too, that like, man, if this person's really sick, like, hey, I'm going to put this big thing on your chest here. We're not going to use it unless we have to, but it's a weird thing. And in the ambulance, it's a little bit different. We have more room to work. Right. But it's, um, there's a spectrum of how you can do that. But I love the idea of having the at least the backboard under this yeah. person. Um, doesn't hurt. Doesn't hurt. Just got to remember right. to grab it when you leave. Right. And the whole process, if it's all ready to use, you won't have to use it. And if it's not ready to use, you'll have to use it. Yada, yeah. Yada, yada. You know, so Alex, your plan worked really well. So 20 minutes into the ride, you know, you until start dropping a little bit, you put the EpiDrip on, you got it at about eight mics a minute. And his blood pressure came up again and stayed in the with maps of about 75 or so with heart rates uh, at capture at 70. Occasionally, it would actually go above that um, and you'd lose the demand. It looks like the Epi, he really liked that. So that was great. Good choice. Um, maps did okay. And you didn't have to make any other changes to the Epi after starting it at about eight is where you started for this person. Perfect. Is it? Reasonable that we would start at eight for somebody like this. I I probably would have started at like five ish anyway, right? Yeah. the The guideline is two to twenty. Yeah. So ten being in the middle, eight is probably fine. Yeah. Who knows? I mean, some people might start at two and really quickly work their way up. Some people might start at ten and work their way down. Like whatever. But yeah. if it works, it works, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I like that process too. Like if the person doesn't really need it, starting really low is fine. If the person really needs it, you start off higher and then you kind of down titrate a little bit. Sometimes we do that with norepinephrine for the septic shock patients. And people are like, well, nope, start at 10 because this person's really sick. And I'm like, hey, I just think they need a whiff. Start at 2 and right. we'll reassess. So yeah. um, that's good. You get to the hospital. And so you get to this facility here. You had 
activated a heart team or you said a critical critical heart patient or maybe this place doesn't have that type of capabilities in terms of how you call the radio report, but you say you, they're going to need a pacemaker. And so you get there, you're going to the resuscitation room, and you got the, the whole ER team is ready for you. Yeah. How are you doing this transition? Because this is a trickier thing. Yeah, so the, the first step is to go very slow. Um, I've talked about this a lot. If I have a critical patient, I stand between the stretcher and the hospital bed until I'm done giving a report, and like it, it works very well. I've seen you do that, and if it's been it's actually been refreshing. Thanks. Yeah, it's uh, because otherwise st- stuff happens. IVs get pulled out, whatever. the The hospital needs to go get whatever they're going to use to pace. However, the hospital wants to do it is fine. I think you have to plan for them switching to transcutaneous pacing. And what they're going to need to do is either do an anterolateral or get really close to the AP placement that you have. They're going to bring their pacemaker up. I usually say, you know, if we're, our rate is 70, we'll have them go to like 80 because then you know for sure that theirs has taken over. And as they bring their milliamperage up, we bring our milliamperage down. And everybody should be prepared for the fact that that transition, one, is very clunky and takes a lot of time, and two, does not always work. But that's the big thing is make sure that you, you know, people get excited. We're humans and occasionally you'll see a stat pad go flying. And that was what was keeping the patient alive. Yeah. So I like that you call it that process. And I think and I like standing in front or making sure there's some barrier to them really taking over the case. We've talked to some crews who say that they were pacing somebody. They got to the hospital. And just like you said, somebody in the ER team just took the pads off and, and put their pads on instead. But the person no one was ready to start pacing them to take over and the person went unresponsive or even into cardiac arrest again. Um, so that process is very difficult to manage. And that's one of those ones where making sure they listen to your report, you make sure you're very clear that you're currently keeping them alive with their electrical and mechanical capture via pacing and that we need to figure out how to transition them appropriately. I love that if you can just, if they're ready to go to the cath lab, if it was like a heart team activation here at North, and you just keep them on that that monitor, and so you don't even have to worry about the switch over until they get upstairs. That's reasonable and would be a great, I think, a good use of resources, even if it takes us out of service for a little while longer. That's the best to care for the patient, to not try and manage this navigate this transition between our pads and their pads. This is one of those times where it does not matter how long it takes you out to get out of the ER, yep. right? So if you're standing there for half an hour, 45 minutes, I get it. I, we have to be mindful of those things. Resources are finite, mm-hmm. even in a perfect EMS system. Resources are finite. This is one of those patients that is so fragile, right? Yep. I this transitioning a pacemaker over and moving somebody that was on ECMO and twenty drips are like the two hardest moveovers I can think of. Curveball, 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 curveball. All right, let's roll back to the beginning of this case, and they say as you're starting to roll out to the ambulance. They give you the extra. They found another sheet of paper for this person that says they are DNR. Okay. What's that change for you? Nothing. So tell me more your thought process behind that. I mean, if he arrests, it changes something, right? But DNR is to the point that your heart stops beating. That's it. I mean. But you're right. So people who need pacing, right? If family is there and said absolutely not, and they're end-of-care goals are very clear that they wouldn't want any type of thing like this, right? Maybe it's a different story. But this is a situation, people who are DNR means if you go into cardiac arrest, you get them back, right? they're probably not going to get back to their baseline, and their baseline was already a place that they'd prefer not to to be worse off. Yeah. Somebody who's getting paced for a complete heart block or who's going to complete heart block, 
if you can temporize them to getting their pacemaker, they can go back to their baseline. These are people that get back to their baseline. So I think that it's very appropriate to continue pacing this person even with a DNR. I agree with you. Yeah, for sure. So this is it's something we will often see because as you get older, these are people who need, who often, more often go into high-grade blocks, high-grade AV blocks and need a pacemaker. And it's very reasonable that these people who are DNR and DNI get pacemakers. I mean, it. you know, if the patient is awake enough, it's probably worth the discussion. Perfect. But it's it's probably mostly worth the discussion at the hospital, not in the back of the ambulance, right? That's a, that's a tough decision yep. in the back of an ambulance to yeah. make. Oh, we're going to stop pacing you knowing that that could mean you die. Yeah. It's, it's easier to make the determination, oh, we're going to stop doing CPR knowing that you're already dead. Well, Alex, you got this person to the cath lab at the facility, so great work. Phew. Yeah, right. Yeah. You're really sweating over there. It's warm, it's warm in your office. Is it? Next time we can do we can go back to the to the Trembley recording studio next time. Trembley recording studio is nice. There's a dog. <laughs> and I usually bring you snacks. So one thing that I'm always impressed by with people who get pacing when you get mechanical capture, somebody who's really altered. It's how much better they look suddenly. Well, it's yeah. like you're like they're dying in front of you and you go up all right, 70 milliamps, 80, 85, 90, boom. Ah, what are you doing to me? I'm like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> They're alive. Okay, here we go. It's it's almost immediate sometimes, which is truly remarkable. Oh my gosh, it's what it felt like when I did it recently. It was like, oh, this worked. Okay, this was the answer. So um, everybody out there, I hope you like this format. This was our first time doing it. I think we can probably improve on this significantly. We'd love your feedback on yeah. these cases. You want us to hear how we progress. And I think what might happen in the future is Alex will will prompt me or but we'd be interested in however we want to do this and i think it's a fun way to do it and to talk about good cases and things that we don't do a whole lot but are really critical when they happen so we'll talk to you again in about three weeks zach it's been great always alex thanks bye bye thank you for listening please make sure to leave us a rating and review and drop us a like on facebook by searching north memorial ems Make sure to tell your friends, first responders, and anyone else who might enjoy the show. Also, if you have any questions or show topic suggestions, please email alexander.tremblay at northmemorial.com. Until next time.